0: as we have gathered together um, each Sunday, going through this time um, and at the same time, just recognizing that that God has a way of of being relevant. He is always relevant in his word. And uh, I'm just so excited for that. And I would encourage you to just anticipate our time this morning. And like I said, we're gonna be reading a long section of scripture. And um, I wanna invite you out of respect for the word of God, wherever you are to stand, uh, you can read your Bibles. I would encourage you to do that. If you don't have your Bibles or if you prefer, it will be on the screen. And um, it's going to be about seven or so minutes of reading. So I would encourage you now. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13 all the way through chapter 10 and verse 29. So let's begin. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and Present yourself before Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none, uh, none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand, and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field, and on land, uh, in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as has never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I Have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and... The houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he returned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the man go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds. We must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left." So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts has never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant or of the field, uh, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh, pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord your little ones. Also may go with you only, let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Join me in prayer. Lord, we come to you now, having read this long section of scripture, full of vivid imagery and a demonstration of your mighty power on a rebellious people. And Lord, we are in awe. We are um, humbled. But Lord, we know that you have a purpose. You have a reason for this. So Lord, give us wisdom this morning. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we have not, Lord, would you give us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And may I, as your mouthpiece, be faithful to proclaim your truth today, so that your people will be built up, that the gospel would go forward, and that you ultimately would be glorified. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, I really struggled with math in particular, algebra. Now, it wasn't so much that I didn't understand it, although I was never a math whiz. It's that I really struggled with finding X, because quite honestly, I didn't care what X was. Who cares what X is? You see, it wasn't until I took physics and chemistry and that we applied formulas and X now actually had a meaning There is a purpose now that I saw behind determining what X was. That's when the light bulb went off, and it's like, aha, now I understand the purpose behind finding X. And friends, there's a sense in which we need to understand once again, in a fresh way, the purpose behind these plagues. Now, of course, God refers to them as signs and wonders and miracles, but... There's some things that were taught here in his word, in particular in this plague account, that helps us understand the purpose of these plagues. In chapter 12, verse 12, which we haven't gotten to yet, but there, he, he's referring back now to what he was doing in the plagues, and God says, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. In other words, he wanted to execute judgment on Egypt's gods. He wanted to prove them to be powerless and to be empty. But then we come into our text, and we actually have a lot of information that helps us understand, and and Moses is seeking to help his readers understand the purpose now of these plague accounts. In chapter 9, in verses 14 through 15, he says here he wants to make himself known to Pharaoh and Egypt. He says, first of all, that there is none like me in all the earth. There we see God's uniqueness. And then he says, to show you my power. There we see God's power. And then, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. There's God's reputation. He wants Egypt and Egypt's people, and Pharaoh in particular, to know and to see who he is. And then... We find also in chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, a very kind of a a long section there, just introducing that next plague. But in there, we find some really helpful material for us. Because it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. So, to show. Secondly, that you may tell in the evening. Uh, Sorry, in the hearing of your son and your grandson, how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. And then thirdly, that you may know that I am the Lord. So show, tell, know. And ultimately, friends, this is what God is getting at. If you notice the theme of, of Exodus is, I will be known. God wants us to know him. So the goal of all these signs and wonders that we call the plagues here is that we should know Him. These plagues are, in a sense, a missionary plagues. They are given to declare the glory of God. They had missiological purposes. Yes, they're given to punish Pharaoh. Yes, they're they're given to set Israel free from the bondage of slavery. But friends. They have missiological purposes to proclaim the power and the name of the Lord our God in all the earth. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 9 as he talks about election and predestination. And this is what he says So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, what is it that God wants us to do when we find ourselves struggling? When that struggle happens in our marriages, or or we're having difficulty parenting, or we're 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 just kind of going crazy with this sheltering in place, or or maybe just the political situation that seems to be blowing around night right now, and or maybe it's just the, the struggle that you might have with some infidelity, or maybe you're you're struggling with a, a besetting sinful habit. It could be a number of different things. What is it that God wants you to do? There's a lot of things you might. God wants you to do, but the first thing God wants you to do is He wants you to know Him. And and throughout this text, all these things are flashing and happening, but ultimately, He is on display. He wants to be known by Egypt, by Israel, and by us. He wants us to know who He is, what He's done, and what He is doing. He wants us to know why we can trust Him that He has our lives fully in control, and that He is more powerful than you can ever imagine. And when God does make Himself known, in particular, as He is on display through the preaching and teaching or the study of His Word, He wants His children especially to respond rightly to what He reveals. So the, the emphasis here in this, these three plagues is, is for us to consider how are we responding when God is on display? How are we responding when he reveals himself? Are you eager to listen? Do you desire to be obedient? Are you hungry to bow down and worship him when he makes himself known? Or are you distracted, self-reliant? or simply unaffected. Friends, the text before us today is is screaming at us, respond rightly, respond rightly, don't make the mistake of what Pharaoh's doing. So we've gone from blood to frogs to gnats to flies to livestock to boils, and now we're going to see hail and locusts and darkness. And in a couple of weeks, we'll finally come to death. And as the plagues have unfolded, they have increased in severity and intensity. They're all bad, but they're getting worse and worse. Blood in the Nile was bad, but today we will encounter a deathly hail, a devouring locust, a debilitating darkness. And in the midst of each of these plagues, There is a revealing of a tension of sorts, a choice, a reaction, or a response to God in one way or the other, a reality, a condition, or an orientation to God. And that tension is found in the similar structure of each of these plagues. So each of these plagues we're going to look at has a plague warning, a competing tension, And then an outcome or a response as a result of the plague and their interaction with the plague. So this morning, let's jump in to a deathly hail. A deathly hail. And first of all, I want you to consider the warning. Once again, Moses is to go to Pharaoh in the morning and confront him with the command of God to let my people go that they may serve me, or that they may worship me is the idea behind that. And Pharaoh, he says to Pharaoh, this time I will impact you personally. This is not going to be kind of a general plague. This is going to happen to have an effect on you directly. I've been patient, he says. I could have cut you off if I wanted to, but I've raised you for a purpose to show my power and my reputation Uh, through what I'm doing with you. So if you don't obey my word and let my people go, I will send a hailstorm that will cause death to every man and beast that is not sheltered in place. Now, I don't know about you, but I've experienced a few hailstorms in my life. Most of them, if I've experienced experienced them, they're, they're small pellets that just come down and they last just for a little bit. Others... I have experienced are a little bit more like marble-sized hailstorms. But I have, on one occasion, experienced more what would be considered golf ball-sized golf ball hailstorms. Uh, hail and those really did some damage. They dented or dimpled cars. They broke windows. They damaged plants. They welted heads, people that were still out. But this was not going to be any kind of normal hailstorm. Hail this is a unique hailstorm that Egypt has never experienced before. This was to be a very heavy hailstorm that would kill both man and beast in the field. Friends, this is terrifying. This is the kind of, of terror that is out there that you want to rush inside to be protected from. And friends, all of this is a challenge, is an affront to the gods that the Egyptians were worshiping. Let me just highlight a few of them. As we go through each plague, we've done this. There's Nut, the sky goddess. Shu, the goddess of sunlight and air. Tefnut, the goddess of water, rain, dew, and moisture. Renenutet, the cobra goddess of grain and harvest. In other words, by God doing this with the hail, he is saying, look, I am showing you my power. You have none. So this is a warning that this is what God will do since Pharaoh won't let his people go. But friends, get this, there's still room for humility. There's still room for repentance. There's still room for obedience. But We move now from the warning to what I'm calling the tension. And this is the tension. It is a tension between apathy and the fear of the word of the Lord. So those who fear the word are those who are believing. They're believing what This God of Israel says that He will do. His warning will take place. And so as they have experienced so far six plagues, they have the evidence that's been laid out. They've had the experience of the plagues themselves. And so if God of Israel says, I'm going to send a hail that will kill man and beast, they're paying attention and they're adjusting accordingly. But then there are always those who will pay no attention to God's Word. Because they just don't care. They're apathetic. They ignore the warning and carry on with life without consideration of what God has said to them in the warning. Friends, the message of the Bible is that you are a sinner, and as a sinner, you are already condemned. That's the warning. It's not saying that if you sin, you're condemned. You are already condemned. You're heading down the path toward destruction. And judgment is coming. And God warns us over and over and over in Scripture. And he says in Psalm 1 and verses 5 and 6, the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, but will ultimately perish. In John 3.16, those who do not believe will perish and will not have everlasting life. So judgment is coming for those who are not God's children. But there is a word of hope. There is a word of help from God. Again, John three sixteen and 17 reinforces this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him and then Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the Lord or the glory of the, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself. For us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So friends, there is this tension going on. A tension between listening to God's word and believing God's word or just being apathetic and behaving out of that apathy by saying, I don't care. But now I want you to notice The outcome. So the Lord tells Moses to stretch out his hand toward heaven and so begin the plague of hail. And just want to pause again and just look at the detail of what's said here about the effect of this hail. Then Moses is verse 23 then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. That's pretty daunting. And the the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So friends, this was a powerful demonstration, an incredible demonstration of God's power, thunder, fire, hail, that results in death to every man and beast, and destruction of every plant, tree, and crop. Now, I want you to notice then the pleading that happens as a result of this plague. And I call this false repentance. Notice notice what he says here. It's what Pharaoh says. He says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. I have sinned. The Lord is right. I and my people are wrong. But Moses isn't fooled by Pharaoh's empty repentance, is he? You'll notice there at the, the end of verse 30, well, verse 30 says, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. So we have this, this pleading, but it, it comes out of this empty repentance. And then ultimately at the end here, we see he hardened his heart when the Lord stops the plague of the hail. He continues to sin. This is the plague of the hail. Let's move on now to the devouring locusts, the devouring locusts. Now, one of the greatest fears of any agrarian society is a swarm of locusts. They've tilled the ground, they've planted the seed, they've cultivated it, they're watering it, and now the crop grows, and the worst thing that can happen is a swarm of locusts to come and just eat up the crops. It's it's the fear of of most societies because most societies are agrarian, and we have to remind ourselves that you think you know people think of California as like you know one big L A right you know with sidewalks everywhere and, and and roads everywhere and and all you have to do of course is go into the valley and you realize that California is far more about agriculture. And without that agriculture, our country would be suffering. Imagine if a plague came on California and, and destroyed all of the crops in the valley. It would be rough, especially for those of you that like avocado. It would be really, really bad for you. But here's the reality, friends. There's a warning going on. And the second time Moses goes into Pharaoh's palace to confront him, with the word of the Lord. Let's just read it again. Let's just think through what's being said here. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land. you get that? They'll cover the face of the land so that none can see the land. Now just imagine that sight. Imagine what that would look like. And and, and notice also here that they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill houses and the houses of all your servants. I want you to turn back to chapter 9 of verse 31 through 32. I think it's worth just going back there and noticing what's happening because not all of the vegetation was destroyed with the hail. I know last time we talked about how the word all doesn't always mean all. And there is some vegetation here specifically that Moses reveals for us in this parenthetical statement in verses 31 and 32. It's helpful to see because it makes the impact then of the locusts that much greater. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So you can just now imagine that there's still vegetation. Whatever the hail destroyed, whatever was left, now the locusts are coming, and they're going to clean up shop. That's the idea. That's the picture here. The power of God is displayed in this plague of the locusts. Secondly, the impotence of Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods is also on display. Notice that Pharaoh could do nothing to stop this plague. I mean, where are the magicians now? They're not trying to do anything. If anything, all they're doing is speaking to Pharaoh. And secondly, the gods of Egypt could do nothing to stop this plague. It's an affront then to the gods of Egypt that reigned over agriculture. And here's a few of them just to. Um, just to remind you, we're talking about these gods who you can look back in history were uh, worshipped in Egypt in these particular areas, in particular in the area of grain and crops, right? Nepri, the god of grain, Renanutet, which I mentioned before, the goddess of grain, and Set, the god of crops. So God is coming and saying, I'm going to show the impotence of your gods, but I want you to see my power. It will be on display. That's the warning, and this is what's going to happen. But friends, as we move from warning, we move into tension. And here's the tension. There's a tension here between foolishness and humility. Have you noticed how God has used humility already in the first plague? But now he brings it up again. He says, how long uh, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? Even Pharaoh's servants are saying to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Give in to their requests. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Now, Friends, that's a powerful statement. The the servants, Pharaoh's servants, his, his counsel, so to speak, his wise men are saying to him, Pharaoh, give it a rest. Don't be a fool. Be wise. Let them go. Egypt is already doomed. But like most fools, Pharaoh would rather be humiliated than humble himself before God. It's our responsibility to be humble before God. But for those who refuse rebel against God, they only have God's humiliation to look forward to. Now we see this in Psalm 2, Psalm 2, notice what it says, why do the nations rage and people plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. And now notice, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God will humiliate those who rebel against him. So friends, there's this tension between foolishness and humility. And and here this persistent lifelong folly will be exposed ultimately for what it is. Pharaoh is being challenged by his own inner court of advisors that see the writing on the wall, they see his defiance, his hard-heartedness, his arrogance, and his foolishness. And they say, don't you see what's happening? Let them go. But friends, never underestimate a fool. They're smart, they're cunning, and they're so clever. So Pharaoh reverts back to his power-grabbing attempt at false humility and even compromise Yes, okay, you can go, but who exactly is going to go? And Moses stands his ground and says, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast of the Lord. Now notice how Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. If you remember the first part of Exodus, We kind of encountered a Moses that was very, very fearful, very, very tentative, right? But there's no fear in speaking to Pharaoh now. We will go. We will go. There's no compromise in Moses' words. Young and old, sons and daughters, flocks and herds, we must hold a feast to the Lord. He's clear, he's bold, and unwilling to be manipulated. And that doesn't go over very well with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, overcome with foolish pride, now must still try and have some measure of control, although he's being humiliated. And so he says in verse 10, The Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you've some some evil purpose in mind. Now the structure of this verse indicates that this is nothing but sarcasm. So let's kind of think it through a little bit more. It's almost as if Pharaoh is saying this, oh, sure, that's fine. Take your little ones with you, and I'm sure that when you take your little ones with you, you'll know that your Lord is in control. No, that's not happening. I know you have some evil intention in mind. See, it's that kind of a a spirit in, in what's being said here. But then the truth of his hard heart comes out. He says, no. Go, the men among you. In other words, not the little ones, not the women. Then, of course, you're not just going to leave the kids. The women are going to have to stay. Just the men go and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. In other words, this is a measure at attempted compromise, isn't it? And Pharaoh has Moses and Aaron driven out from his presence. Friends, even with God challenging Pharaoh's refusal to be humble, even with his servants pleading with Pharaoh to let the people go because Egypt is ruined, Pharaoh is entrenched in his foolish pride. And it causes him to be deaf to those around him, to be blind to what has actually taken place, to be vocal in detrimental and condescending ways, to be irrational in his behavior, requests, and decisions. And friends, that's what happens when we choose foolishness over humility. To be humble means that we listen to God, we obey him, we trust that he knows best. But foolish pride is exalting yourself and thinking that you alone know what's best. Which one best describes you? Which is the direction that your heart tends to go? What is your response to God when he makes himself known? But then you notice the outcome. We have, again, false repentance. Look at verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once, plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. Now, Friends, I mean, just think about this. If if we had heard those words from Pharaoh, we, we would have been convinced, I'm sure, that, hey, finally a change has taken place. I mean, look at what he's saying. I've sinned against the Lord. This is against Yahweh, your God, and against you. Cha-ching! All right, great. Finally got the job done. Moses is converted. Now he's a follower of Yahweh, right? Now, what if these words came out of the lips of one of our recent presidents? Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, George W., Barack Obama, or even Donald Trump? Seriously, would we believe them? Would there be rejoicing in the streets that our president is now a follower of Yahweh? that he's now born again? Would churches start to praise the man? Would they start giving him freedom for other foolish things that he's saying? Would they start to look to him as their hope and their savior for their country? Simply by a few words that are spoken? How many times does Pharaoh say here, I have sinned. I sinned against you. I was wrong, we were wrong. Let's be honest. We can all be gullible to believe words, can't we? And it's not because we don't want to believe people, but hear this, true repentance will be evident not by words, but by fruit. By actions and behavior that is the fruit of repentance. What we have here is Pharaoh giving the words, but it's an empty repentance. He has no intention whatsoever of following through with what he's saying. He is not bowing his knee to Yahweh. And friends, that's what's lacking here. Pharaoh is willing to get the monkey of Israel's God off of his back, but he has no real desire to stop what he's doing and bow down to worship him at all. He certainly isn't looking to abandon Egypt's gods. Yes, he's willing to take a little suffering on the chin. He'll offer a false repentance if that's what's needed, but we will soon see that he's back to his old ways. And if we're honest, friends, we see a lot of Pharaoh in ourselves, don't we? We want to be God in our lives. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. We just want God to affirm that. And So we have all the the facade of spirituality, but we are actually the ones that are driving our purposes, our goals, our agendas, rather than saying, God, what is your will? Let me follow that will for your glory. And Yes, we might put on a little bit of a religious humility at times, but we're quick to get back to our sinful habits and ways. And of course, ultimately, after the false repentance, as we would expect, there's just further hardening that takes place. So we move now from the devouring of the locusts to the dreadful darkness, a groping darkness. Now, there's no warning this time. No warning for this plague of darkness that comes over the land of Egypt. But what we're told is that it is a darkness thick enough to be felt. It's quite a statement, isn't it? But what we're told, or say what we should think about that is this. This is an intense, dense, thick Darkness. It's so dark that you can grasp it with the hand. It's a groping darkness, so dark that people will have to feel their way around. And it was this way for three days, three 24 hour periods pitch darkness, groping darkness that did not adjust or change because it was night. It was darker than the darkest night. And friends, the dreadfulness of this darkness was that it was even darker than night. And and it's hard for us to actually imagine what they were going through for three days. But friends, for the Egyptians, this was not good news at all. It was debilitating and terrifying news. Here's how one commentator expresses it. To appreciate fully this plague account, we must understand how ominously darkness threatened ancient people. We travel easily at night with the aid of various forms of electricity. They were virtually immobilized by the darkness of nighttime unless the night was cloudless and the moon relatively full. We can be active at night because our homes and places of work can be cheaply illuminated. They closed up their cities at night, barred the courtyard gates, and locked their house doors. People abroad in the nighttime were assumed to be criminals, and typically, in fact, were. We feel relatively safe during the night, even away from home, with various means of communication to call for help readily available. They were at the mercy of common thieves, and bandits when away from home at night. And unless well armed and in large groups, they were easy prey for those who used the nighttime as cover for evil. They understood that the darkness was essentially chaotic, a kind of enemy of the safe and the good. We may think of it as just another phase of the day. They considered confinement in darkness a grave punishment from God, even a sort of sometimes purposeful force and associated with death. We don't think much about it at all. Uh, we may have been in some situations where it is so dark you can't see the hand in front of you. I think I've been in some caverns here in California where part of the part of the show is they take you down and then they shut the lights off and you realize you can't you can't see that. And to imagine doing that for three days straight and trying to function during that time And the things that would go on mentally and emotionally in the midst of all that would be pretty daunting. And of course, that reminds us then that this is a challenge, again, to the gods of Egypt. And in particular, as, as these plagues have been growing in their intensity, so has the articulation against, you might want to say, the perceived more powerful gods of the Egyptians. And of course, probably the the most powerful god in their thinking was the god Ra, also known as Amun-Ra, the Egyptian sun god. Where are you, Ra? And he's considered to be the most powerful god in Egypt, but also, he is also considered to be the ancestor, or we could put it this way, the pharaohs were considered to be... um, The sons of Ra. So Ra can't do anything about this darkness. Pharaoh can't do anything about this darkness. But there's other gods too, as we have here in this list. Horus, who's the god of light. Ptah, god who created the moon and the sun and the earth. Again, the the moon and the sun, in particular, light-bearing aspects of the world. Atum, another sun god. Shu, the god of sunlight and air. So as we've seen throughout this plague narrative, God is seeking to confront the gods of Egypt as empty and impotent. They had three days to show themselves, three days to confront what the God of Israel was doing. And for three days, you can imagine the Egyptians crying out to their gods, and there's silence. See, God is saying, don't put your trust in such impotent man-made gods. Put your trust in me, the I am. So we have this warning. And from this warning of this, this plague, we, we move now to the tension. And the tension here is between what happens in the darkness and what happens in the light. You see, Egypt is in dreadful darkness. And we're told Israel is in I'll say glorious light. God continues to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He he used that word in our last set of, of plagues. Israel enjoys the blessing of light, protection, provision, a promise. But Egypt is suffering in the darkness. And this darkness and light motif runs throughout Scripture. I'm going to read a number of verses. You can listen as I read, but just hear how this motif develops. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 3.19, and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 8:12. Again Jesus spoke to them saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." John 12:46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Then the Apostle Paul kicks in 2 Corinthians chapter six and verse 14, he says, this: "What fellowship has light with darkness? And then in the book of Ephesians chapter five and verse eight, he says, "For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light. And then in Colossians, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, the tension here is between genuine saving belief and defiant rebellious unbelief. You cannot be in two places. You're either in Egypt acting like a fool or following a foolish leader, or you are in the safety of Goshen with the people of God following the I Am. Again, you're either spitting curses while the Son of God is hanging on the cross, or you're weeping at a distance, knowing the depth of your own sinfulness, but the glory of His sacrifice and forgiveness. Two more verses to think through. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. This is God describing His people, in particular in the Old Testament, now realized in the New Testament also, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then we flash forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 16 and verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People nod their tongues in anguish. So there's this light and darkness that we find here. So judgment in darkness, friends, is thoroughly and frighteningly debilitating and devastating. And notice the outcome we have here. As we move back in our tanks, we see that Pharaoh is up to his tricks again, isn't he? Pharaoh attempts a compromise. You see, in chapter 8, verse 25, he says, Okay, I'll let you go. Go sacrifice your God within the land. Then in chapter 8, verse 28, he says, Okay, I'll let you go, but you must not go far. Now in chapter 10, verse 11, he says, Go, but only the men can go, but not the little ones. And now in verse 24, he says, Go with your little ones, but the flocks and the herds remain. So what we have to recognize here is that he's saying, no, I'm not going to let you go as God is saying you need to go. But God demands full and complete obedience. Yes, Pharaoh, in his hard heart and stubbornness, won't comply. He still wants to call the shots, doesn't he? He's still trying to somehow compromise and manipulate the message and the command from God. But notice Moses' faithful conviction. I love these couple of verses here. And look at the word must through it. But Moses said, this is verse 25, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord God. And we do not... No, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. So Moses here has grown from being a, a man of fearful insecurity to a servant with faithful conviction. No, Pharaoh, we can't adjust the plan. We must do everything like Yahweh says, fully and completely, exclamation point. How does Pharaoh respond? Again, continued hardness of heart. Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. His hardness just increases and gets more entrenched. Well, friends, now let's just draw from all of this and, and think through three truths that I think will help us as we, we try and grasp from these three Plague, some some sense of understanding, and the first thing I want to talk about is this: God's covenant protection. Some of you may uh, may watch Batman through the years, and if you watch Batman through the years, this is usually what happens: Batman is running around, he's trying to stop the villain from doing this thing, and that thing might be you know causing some damage or putting people's lives in danger, and they are in the thick of some kind of fight, and the narrator says, and meanwhile, back in Gotham City. And since there's a very similar thing going on here in this text, isn't there? In each of these plagues, there's, this is what's happening in Egypt. Oh, by the way, and meanwhile, back in Goshen City, there are God's people. Egypt is suffering from God's judgment, but back in Gershom City, the children of Israel are safe. There are no dying livestock. There's no devoured crops or vegetation. There's no pitch darkness. What we see here is the joy of God's protection against the dread of God's judgment. And friends, we may not always see God's protective hand, but it is always present with His people. Why? Because He's covenanted with us. He promises to protect us. He promises to be present with us. And so that comes on display here with his children as they are in Gershom at this point in time. And we don't always see the dread of God's judgment, but we know that it is coming. God's judgment, friends, is not a popular topic. It's real, and it's full wrath on those who shake their fists at God. We must all pay attention Therefore, we should be thankful for God's grace and care towards us. We don't deserve it at all. But we can also be truly saddened by man's hardness and continued rebellion toward God. The only remedy for hardness and rebellion is God's work in a man through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we preach, we share, we proclaim, we live the gospel. And as we do so, we trust in God's work. That the seed of his gospel will take roots. God's covenant protection, friends, is at work in the midst of all that we're going through. Secondly, I want you to consider God's covenant responsibility. There's three things that really scream from this text. Three lessons for that second generation, that audience that he's writing to. Of course, he's ultimately writing to us also. First of all, we must take God seriously. There's no room for being apathetic toward God. When God speaks, we need to listen. When God reveals, well, what He reveals is important. What God says, He means. And be very careful that your heart is becoming dull to God to the point that you no longer care. It's a very dangerous place to be, my friends. Instead, Heed the warning. Pay attention. Secondly, not only do we take God seriously, we must approach God humbly. I think we can be so very cavalier in our relationship with God that we don't take how we interact with Him and think of it in in a right way. So we're living in a very self-assertive, self-sufficient society where we feel that we don't need God or that He is some kind of crutch. And it's easy to find yourself yourself, um, telling God what you think is best, your ideas, your goals, your agendas, things that you want Him to bless. No, friends, we're to approach God with tentative plans, agendas, and ideas, and we need to be willing to allow Him to fashion and shape those plans and ideas by His Word and by His wisdom. What does Scripture say? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He's not saying, you have desires in your heart, therefore delight in the Lord, and he's going to do what you want him to do. No, he's saying delight in the Lord, and when you delight in the Lord, your desires will change, and what will bear fruit are his desires that work in you. This all happens when we approach God humbly. We also must obey God faithfully. It's easy to drift toward comfort and compromise, Especially when it comes to living out your life as a follower of Christ. Remember, if you're a child of God, you've been radically changed. I mean, you are different. And He has called you to live your life for His glory. Your baptism is a picture of that reality. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then you are, through the waters of baptism, or the picture there, through the gospel, made alive in the light of freedom because of what Christ has done. So we must take God seriously. We must approach God humbly. We must obey God faithfully. And then finally, I think this is such a powerful thing, and parents hear this. I want you to think about God's covenant story. Did you catch the fact that you and I have a story to tell? This is what Moses is saying to that second generation, I, I have given you this account of the plagues, yes, so that you can know what I've done with them, but so that you would tell your sons, so that you would tell your grandsons, your children, right, and your, your family that they would know who I am. It's a story about Israel's deliverance from captivity in Egypt. It's a story about God's faithfulness to his covenant, even when Israel wandered from him. It's a story about God's righteous judgment because they stopped paying attention to what God was saying. But it's also a story of God's faithfulness to his covenant by sending his son to die on the cross. It's a wonderful story. It's also a story about your deliverance from the bondage of your sin through the power of the cross. And friends, it's a story that ends with judgment for all who rebel against God. Friends, God is on display. He is revealing himself. And the question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to fear his revealed word? Or are we simply going to ignore it, not pay attention to it? Are we going to be humble before him? Are we going to act like fools? Of course, the end result of that is we'll either be in darkness or we're going to be in his glorious light. How will you respond? I trust that you will respond by humbling yourself, by listening to his word and enjoying the blessing of light, living with him for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. This section of Scripture is very daunting in many ways. The the kind of things that are being talked about, Lord, the plagues that you are using as means of judgment, signs and wonders so that you can be known. Lord, they are really amazing, powerful demonstrations of who you are, but Lord, help us not to just think of them as plagues, but Lord, help us to think of them as means by which we can evaluate our own hearts and ask ourselves the question, do we really want to know you? Are we just satisfied with the the powerful demonstration of your plague, or do we because of that, find ourselves being drawn to you as the only unique, one, true God of this world. Lord, may our time here not simply be theoretical, but Lord, may it be truly practical and drive us to the place where we're saying, Lord, we want more of you, we want more of you, we want more of you. And Lord, being thankful for who we are because of you And the way, Lord, that you care for us, the way you protect us, Lord, the way that you provide for us, no matter what the storm may be, you are a great God and Savior. And we praise you and we glorify you. And Lord, today, may we continue to be changed by you through your word. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Well, friends, it's been good to be with you this morning. And um, it's just been a joy to connect again and take this section of Scripture to heart. I just uh, am, am concerned that we would see this s- as a serious um, reminder, refresher, instruction for, for us to keep pressing on, even during this time of pandemic, to know Him more. Looking forward to seeing some of you Um, in just a few minutes via Zoom. Uh, For those that are visiting with us, so glad to have you here. May God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.